Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 535 on Tuesday, the 25th of July, 2023. Hello, I'm Alan. Hello, I'm Andrew. And this week in the news, we'll be talking about how temporary is the new permanent for one company. In new new car news, we hope one rebirth isn't a false dawn. And in points of interest, we talk about the Dakar race car you've probably forgotten if you knew of it at all. No follow-up this week, thankfully. Oh. Yes. Straight into the massive news of the week, which is that Tata have confirmed finally, after we were told it was imminent well over a month ago, mm. that uh, they are going to build their £4 billion battery factory, thank you Autocar for calling it only a battery factory, in the UK, and it should be up and running by 2026 if all things go well. It's going to be based in Somerset, but we don't know yet whether it is that same site that has been earmarked in the past for Rivian, uh, for JLR, for Tesla near Bridgewater or not. But it seems that most of the infrastructure is either there or ready to go. So I think it's probably going to be there. There's a couple of interesting things about this as well. One of which is that it's not solely for vehicle batteries. Or JLR. Or JLR. <laughs> Hence, it's, it's Tata, very much so. And that's good because that gives it more opportunity um it gives it more chance to do various things to to build um to make batteries for other firms and other purposes uh, if there isn't the volume from automotive mm. it's flexible there uh, and that's good because that means it's more likely to survive yep absolutely uh, we're yet to find out how much the uk government is putting in to help make sure that this can be built in the uk which will come out in due course mm. But it just, it just, this is brilliant news. Don't get, don't get me wrong. This is brilliant news for Somerset, for the people who are going to be employed there, for uh, Jaguar Land Rover, and for other industries that will be able to take advantage of these batteries built here. But it's still, I'm still reminded, or this really brings into stark focus, that there is no industrial strategy in the UK at the moment. No. And I really wish we could get one. And I know it's what SMMT are, are crying out for, literally mm. crying out for. Yeah, and have been for, I'm going to say years, yeah. actually. And it just it just feels like another lurch of who's been shouting loudest, latest, like it was when Gone went to Theresa May and obviously threatened her with something to get huge wadges of cash for the Sunderland plant, which again, you would do if you were a business owner. If you feel that yeah. you've got the opportunity to not have to spend your own money, then why not? But let's not let my concerns cloud this. This is a great bit of news. It's something we've all needed. Now we just need about another six other factories. That's it. If this is, I mean, this has, as I would say, we need over 100 gigawatt hours. It's really to be, to be competitive. This brings it to what uh, the total to 78 gigawatt hour. And remember, this isn't solely for cars. So really, we need another one of these factories. Mm, at least. Somehow, um, we need uh, viable investors to want to, to build another factory in, in the UK. And, and let's see how that pans out. There's nothing we can do to influence that, obviously. No, everybody listens to this show in the industry. So they, of course, we have huge power, Alan. <clears throat> Oh, yes, massive. Just whatever you do, don't read the comments under the Autocar article that are linked. Oh, 
Is it the bottom half of the internet? It is very much bottom half, particularly bottom half of the internet. Okay. Well, why don't you take us to JLR then? Last week, uh, we we covered the new MD of JLR. This week, we're covering the new CEO of JLR. And uh, again, it's the interim uh, CEO, Adrian Mardell, has been made permanent CEO. Uh, so he replaces Thierry Bolloré, who left uh, late on last year. He was previously the chief financial officer. Um, he'd been the company board of directors for three years before that. And he signed a three-year contract for this new position. He's the guy who gave that strategy talk in April, uh, the one that told us lots of things we probably didn't need to know. But hey, it was an event and it was an announcement and it showed people that things were happening. So there we go. It was announced at the same event as as the Tata Battery Factory. Worth mentioning that, that JLR is an anchor customer uh, of that. Yeah. Um, that's the wording that's being used. Good luck to him because to make Jaguar the luxury car company or brand that they claim that that's what the part of the reimagined strategy is all about, then got an uphill battle there. Yeah, to move it up that that the level that they seem to be they they, they seem to to believe um, as a Bentley competitor, I think is yeah. I think that's. I think that's going to be pushing it a bit. I still think it's going to be pushing it a bit, but what do I know? Yeah. I'm going to take us back to fuel prices, I'm afraid. And this is the news from the RAC, who has been unrelenting in their campaign about fuel prices and fair fuel prices in the last 12, 18 months. Mm -hmm. Um, They have found out and discovered that the supermarkets have more than doubled their profit margins since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And that means things like for petrol, it went up from 3.7 pence per litre up to 5.7 pence per litre. And for diesel, 5.7 pence per litre up to 9.3 pence per litre. That's profit. And that's just the profit. Profit, yes. They made sure that they didn't pass on the wholesale price cuts, um, Mm -hmm. which we all know that petrol forecourts are very slow to change. Petrol goes up very quickly and down very slowly, if ever. Yeah, and but this was this is highlighting how this went down incredibly slowly, even by the supermarket standards. Mm. Um, and, and the article that we're going to have linked in the show notes from Autocar reiterates the idea that's been put forward for the fuel price comparison app. Um, and I yeah. saw one of our listeners uh, on Twitter was saying that the, that's done in France at no cost without needing any of our data, mm-hmm. uh, and they work very well. Uh, do you want to take us to Norfolk? Uh, yes. Well, not really, but <laughs> Lotus has confirmed proposals to cut up to 200 jobs at its Hethel and Warwickshire base, uh, and those are mainly focused on engineering and administrative uh, roles. Now, articles at this point tend to go on and they tend to talk about uh, how this has been announced just after posting losses of £145.1 million, following £86.6 million loss in 2021, uh, and then they talk about significant falls in sales. None of those three things, uh, I'm sure, is a surprise to Geely. Uh, Whenever you intentionally cut your model range right back so that you can build a whole new model range and a whole new chunk of factory, 
that costs money. Yeah, of course. When you're de- developing a range of cars, after not really developing many cars for a long time, and you're also redeveloping your factory to bring it up to modern standards, that's where the money's going to go. I don't think that there's correlation between between cause and effect here. No, because added the added bonus Lotus have had is they've had supply chain issues as well in the second half mm-hmm. of last year, which uh, compounded the you know already their production was reduced greatly for the reasons you said. That's not going to help things. But again, this would not be a surprise or should not have been a surprise to the parent company because Lotus would be keeping them updated with regular reports. Mm-hmm. And Geely yeah, seem so. comfortable with the way that it, this is all being handled. Uh, and as you mm-hmm. say, if you're making such huge changes to how you do things and what you are trying to do, it costs a lot of money just in uh, reduced production, let alone all the mm-hmm. other stuff. Yeah, and then comes sometimes is is that the numbers of people mm. have to change as well. Yep. I don't think one is to the other. I think it'll work out and even out um, ultimately as well. Yeah. But that's it. It's just a proposal, by the way. It's not actually happening yet. Yeah, because they have to consult with unions and employees, etc. Because they'll be offering uh, who wants to take early retirement mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. So it's it, yeah, they're hoping to avoid any forced redundancies which is the nice grown-up way of doing it yeah i will now move us on to alpine and it's the ex engineering boss for ferrari uh this is philippe Kreef, who is taking over from laurent rossi uh laurent rossi is still going to be part of the renault group and be working on special projects so he's been moved sideways by the look of this mm-hmm. i'm a bit surprised i have to say i didn't think alpine was doing badly no, well, it's not. I mean, the A110 is not selling in vast quantities, and possibly not even in the quantities that they wanted to sell it in. But there is a load of stuff similar to what we've just talked about with Geely, really. There's a lot of stuff being developed in the background, um, SUVs, that kind of thing, to make it more of a to add a bit of volume mm. to to its offering. I think things are just generally working away. So I, again, I don't know if this is, I don't think this is because of anything. Um, it doesn't seem from the outside that there's a particular silly thing taking place. Yeah, I mean, he's made, he made statements about the F1 team and how it wasn't good enough, etc. So changes had already been made to their sports car and their motorsport activities. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, maybe it's tied in with how they pulled out of joint partnerships with other companies to develop things. Yeah, and then went alone. So maybe maybe there's been maybe there's concerns in how he was handling things and agreeing to things, and then then having to change when it appeared to be not a good idea for Alpine to continue. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, maybe. But uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who knows? Yeah. So we'll, as ever with these things, we'll see if it makes any real notable difference to the brand. Um, they seem to be coming out with interesting stuff. So ticking away gently, right? Yeah. Story this week uh, saying that uh, chrome plating is set to be banned. And according to this autocar article, it's potentially forcing car makers to rethink one of the most exploited materials for giving cars a premium look. Yeah, the chrome plating, 
um, creating hexavalent chromium is not good. It is it is a known carcinogen. It's just generally plating stuff with chrome is is a nasty, nasty process involving lots of acids and lots of other na- heavy. Well, chrome itself as a heavy metal is is pretty grim. Mm. But we'll have seen that. Anyone who's watched TV's Poor Cowland when they've when they're on the Salvage Hunters Classic Cars, on, yes, on Salvage Hunters Classic Cars. Thank you. Uh, when they've needed to rechrome stuff, they they take us into places that still do this, and they show the refurb and how they have to strip it all back, mm. and and it's vats of really nasty, horrible looking stuff. It's, vat, it's vats of hot acid. <laughs> they dip it in, and then they put it back in again later after it's clean. It's yeah, it just looks a, a, an awful situation. But is this mm. actually going to make that much difference to the car industry? I think that the the age of the parts being chromed is is I think chrome is is far less used than people think it is. Um, I know that outside of the car industry, certainly palladium nickel plating is much more prevalent, as well as other other similar metals. I'm not sure that this is as big a deal as as people think it is. Uh, as well as that, majority cars nowadays have obviously significantly less chrome than they have had in the past, mm. and there are other alternatives where you can just not. Bits that are quite shiny, or be more careful with which shiny bits you want, and use and I say what use one of those alternatives. I like at the bottom of this uh, this article, the uh, Gilles Vidal, chief designer at Renault, said that even if alternatives are found, he hopes that new materials will be explored. And he goes on and he highlight. It says here he highlighted Renault's use of slate and cork finishes as examples, as well as sixty percent recycled Alcantara. I'm not sure that those are really going to look great on your bumpers. Um, certainly unconventional, the kind of thing that only only Mansory would offer. Yes, but um, but yes, I mean the idea is there. I'm just being facetious and silly, but. But yeah, I I don't know quite what you'd replace it with other than well, most most cars are all hardly anybody uses shiny bits like that anymore. You know, contrasting Just... shiny bits like that, or if they do, they go for something like a copper look or things. Like, you know, and that's typically only on the concept versions. Mm-hmm. What actually comes out mm-hmm. on the market is matching coloured bumpers which would be the old thing that used to be. I mean, God, imagine chromed bumpers nowadays when it's just that huge panel that's, that's hiding everything behind it. That would be um, quite, it would be blinding in some lights. I'm, I'm looking down at mine with the chrome strips under the window, the silver roof bars and the massive grill. So, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, I'm going to move us on to our consumer advice piece of the week. And this, again, mm. uh, linked in the show notes to an autocar article. And it is a used car advert tool to crack down on online sales frauds. This is the Brigo advert checker, which is free to use, that you can put in the, uh, the vehicle and find out if the price that's there is too good to be true. And it will... Uh, establish whether it feels this is a fraudulent advert or not, which has become more and more of a problem. The establishing whether it's fraudulent or not, not only is pointing out that this is, why is this £10,000 cheaper than it should be for that model, that mileage, that location. It will also, um, if you put in the URL, it will also check the adverts that are linked, the photos that are linked for anywhere else that it looks like those exist on the internet as well. Mm. For example, if if the photos have been taken straight from a dealer 
site, for example, and, you know, both cars, you know, the car is for sale in two places and in one place it's £10,000 less than the other place, there's probably something going on. Uh, this is quite interesting because um, Brigo themselves, they're a car valuation service. It seems that Simon Hunt, the co-founder of Brigo, was hearing about all these uh, reports of people being scammed by fraudsters. And basically, in a few days, they rattled together this tool that, that sits on top of their existing data and are offering it free. That's awfully good of them. Leveraging the stuff they already have for the services they provide to, to dealers, which is slightly different, but just to outline and make that available to people. So the only thing really missing here is that everybody know is that people know that these kind of tools exist and that they can access them. Mm. Do click on the link actually because it walks you through a an example of what they uh, investigated and how the tool helped point out um where it was suspect and then through further investigation they found out it really was suspect uh, and mm. and also gives you a hint at what not to do. Uh, when it comes to these things like giving anybody any cash up front yeah. before you've seen the vehicle, uh, which is always easier said than done when you're in the moment, but uh, that is uh, just generally a good piece of advice. You need to see the car if you can, or at least get proper evidence of it, um, video or something like that, that you know the person has taken themselves. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. That it exists where they say it exists. Yes. Anyway, we've got a couple of stories from France now, generally around speeding uh, and the way some of the creative ways in which uh, villages and towns in France are trying to uh, are trying to basically make people slow down. Mm. So the first one's one that's been first kind of reported in April, and that is very much a, a this sort of carrot uh, based approach, and it's actually based on a Spanish system as well. So the idea is that if uh, cars are going at the correct speed, at or below the speed limit, uh, through the town or village, then there is a traffic light, and the traffic light remains green. However, if you're going above the speed limit through the village, the traffic light turns red. And so you have to stop and wait. And then it allows you to go again. And if you cut through the traffic light, uh, there's an immediate €135 fine. But what they don't do is they don't mm. penalise you for the speeding beforehand. It is purely the traffic light is being yeah. used in more of a nudge way rather than the, uh, and hence the carrot, uh, it, mm-hmm. as you said at the start, rather than just penalise you and worry and think of enforcement is the only solution to these problems rather than mm-hmm. nudging people in a in a very gentle way. In a, a village called called Bonnet, I believe, near Angers, they've taken a different approach to this. uh, And that's that uh, they have painted squiggly lines on the road. The idea being to, it says here, uh, according to Audrey Réveroux, the village's mayor, uh, it's to create a visual disturbance to encourage people to slow down. Where there's a a T-junction, then there are many squiggles. Uh, around and the idea is that people are like okay oh well slow down whilst i work out just what's happening here and which markings actually refer to me uh, which is an interesting one yeah i think there's a place in north somerset that'd be interested in that 
<laughs> really, I, quite often that happens here in the UK, but it's where they've they've tried to seal the cracks in the in 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 the tarmac from loads of bits of work, and you can't really work out which bits are the actual lines and which bits are the um, are the markings mm. uh, are the the old markings. I can see uh, autonomous autonomous inverted commas the um, vehicles having an absolute and total hissy fit at this. Or driver assistance tech now already. Gets, that's what I mean. That's that was really gets, where I was going. It's really wound up by, uh, particularly roadworks where they, as you say, they've mm. burnt off the previous markings to create narrow lanes, and all you've got are those little plastic, um, yeah, squares drop down. Yeah, and, and it's just trying the shiny to, bits. It's trying to read what's what, and yeah. But I quite like these ideas because they're 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 slightly different. Like I say, it's not masses of infrastructure because they're not having to you know put in a sleeping policeman or speed bump and then maintain that and then paint it and then there's the potential mm-hmm. for damage to vehicles if it's installed yeah. incorrectly and blah 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 this is which it always is yeah and then this this just seems quite a, a a low impact way of making a big difference they're just interesting and inventive and as you say they make a difference but relatively low impact because if you're doing it right it shouldn't be shouldn't be a problem yeah Right, back to Lambeth and parking. It's been a while since we've dealt with lunatic parking ideas, but we are back there. <laughs> but boy, are we making up for it today. Yes. Lambeth is now going to take out residential parking because 60% of households don't own a car. If you happen to be one of the 40% who do, tough luck. What they are saying is that 94% of curb space is allocated to park vehicles and they want to change that. They are trying to transfer 25, uh, which 25% of curb space to, and, and I'm going to hurt my fingers here in this article because there's an awful lot of commas about, but sustainable uses. So they, they want to do things like put bus lanes in, uh, street trees, which I don't know what that is. I believe it's a tree in the street, mate. It's they're trying to add more greenery to the... So just say tree. Yeah. But it's a tree in a street. Yeah, well, we know that's good for a variety of reasons, one of them being to keep temperatures down uh, instead of reflecting the sun. Not that we get the sun in the UK at the moment, but uh, yeah. Also talking about sustainable drainage systems, um, parklets, so I presume that's small parks rather than small parking spaces. It's a bench, mate. (laughs) It's a bench. That's what it is. And also parking, uh, cycle parking, which is something that needs to be improved pretty much everywhere that wants us to do Mm. these things. But they would also set aside some of the space for car clubs and disabled bays. But Okay. Are car clubs really that much of a thing? Have have they actually, slight aside here, have they actually taken off in the UK at all? In London, yes. You do see some badly driven cars around. Okay. I've seen them in Manchester too, but that was a while ago. Right. But they do, yeah, Zipcar and stuff, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, Zipcar. One of the the points that they were making with all this is that, uh, which was uh, particularly special, I felt, was talking about how uh, these other uses would, in fact, start making the council more money than the parking because there'd been such a reduction in the number of people they could charge whatever... Hmm fee they decided was appropriate and a quote from the borough's uh, council david wilson went on to say that if your motor if your vehicle produces more exhaust or non-exhaust pollutants you should pay more and if your vehicle takes up more space and increases congestion you should pay more 
Okay. This is part of a £31.7 million strategy uh, to help the borough meet its net zero target by 2030, by the way. This is not going to cost £31.7 million, by just to be absolutely clear and not Daily Mail about this, it's not going to cost that much. It's part of that strategy. There we go. Should we move on to Guilt Minute? Yes, let's. Well, it's that quick break in the show when we ask for a tad of financial support to keep the lights on and the hosting running. If you feel the Motoring Podcast is worth a small consideration every month, then you can become a patron. Different levels of patron include different levels of commitment from us to you, including being able to watch the show recorded live. We also have a small range of merchandise in our spring store from stickers to mugs and t-shirts. If you don't have any spare cash, and we do completely understand, then you can help us by following for free from a podcast player to receive every show as they are released, and by liking and rating the show in whatever way your podcast supplier lets you. If you've done all that, and some of you do, so thank you very much, the last thing you can do is to recommend us to your friends or colleagues. Thank you, everyone that does. We know you do. New New Car News, Alan, do you want to take us to an old favourite British mark? Yes, it's a triumph. Good. It's the everybody's going to make that that joke. It's uh, it's the Triumph TR twenty five, uh, which, according to most research, is a bold single seat electric concept car that revives a great name from Britain's automotive past. The Triumph name is still owned by BMW, by the way, but it does have the ble- this concept uh, and this project has the has the blessing of BMW. It's inspired by the Triumph TR. Two specifically the one named after the motorway straight in Belgium that I can never pronounce the Jebbeek, J A B B E K E, but it's pronounced in Flemish, so I have no idea. Probably, which broke the production car speed record in 1953. So it was a one-off streamlined special, and that is the look that Makina, uh, a British design house. Uh, that usually works for major car manufacturers has has taken uh, and turned into the single seat concept. Now it does look like there would be room for a second seat if you remove the fairing over what I would imagine is the passenger side. Mm. The concept, the idea is all based on the BMW i3s powertrain mm-hmm. and to an extent platform. I think it looks pretty cool. Oh, baha. Here we go. I've actually just found it. Uh, if you remove that cockpit cover over the passenger seat, there's a flip-out jump seat suitable for short trips. Okay. But yeah, it's a thousand. It's a one-ton, thousand and ninety kilos car, forty-two point two kilowatt-hour battery, one hundred and eighty-one horsepower electric motor, naught to sixty in about five point three seconds, and a maximum speed of one hundred and fifteen, which is actually significantly slower than the nineteen fifty-three original. Mm. It's really cool. The founder of Makina, uh, Michael Annie, he's driven BMW i3s since 2013 uh, and has had a number of them in that time and really likes it. So it's kind of kind of funky. Yeah. Uh, and cool and and I, I I like it. It's uh, I like that the rendered the rendered rendering is right-hand drive as well. Yes. So often these things magically become left-hand drive. Mm. So yes, so, so that's kind of cool. I yeah. like it. There's no plans to bring it into production or anything like that, but uh, it is a fun and funky looking a car that uh, we thought we would share with you. Yeah, next one. Right, I'm going to take us to China, though. 
Yes. Well, this one isn't really new, new car news. This is sort of, very, this borders between this and news, but there wasn't much new, new car news. So it's in this slot instead. Yeah. There's, there you go. There's our fine production choices. <laughs> We're open with our editorial decisions. Uh, yes. This is the news that SAIC, which is a Chinese uh, car company, has is t- teaming up with Audi in, because Audi need an electric car platform <laughs> desperately. There isn't a Porsche yes. electric car platform. Basically. There's two articles linked in the show notes. We've got uh, one from Electrive, which goes into more of the detail side of things. But there's, I'm also including one from Bloomberg, just for the way they phrase things. Because as everybody who's been listening to us for some time will know, we have been saying repeatedly about how China are ahead of the game in a lot of these mm. things now. And it's no longer China for knockoff stuff and all the rest of it, which, to be fair, when we started the show nearly eight years ago, there was, there was many articles about, oh, look at that knockoff Land Rover, the Evoke, you know, all these other things that, that got taken and not to without court. reason. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they really were. Things have moved on significantly, and now China is is arguably one of the leading places for uh, electric vehicle technology uh, mm-hmm. and how to how to get people uh, excited about them. Yeah, this makes total sense, but it's hugely embarrassing for the VW Group that they are having to outsource this particular bit for just one brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it maybe this was maybe this was part of the reason why. Uh, their CEO had to go. Yeah, I mean, we talked a bit about uh, Audi's challenges last uh, last week, and uh, and I think that this is this is probably part of that. Now, this is actually, although it's hidden away in new new car news, this is probably the most significant piece of news that we're going to cover. Certainly, this week, if not this month, um, far more significant globally than than where Tata decides to build some batteries. Mm. Because this is the first Western brand openly having to do this. Yeah. And I don't think it'll be the last. No, there's there's some details have emerged, which is at the bottom of the Electrive article. There's going to be two EV um, saloons. They're going to be based on the 800-volt platform of IM Motors, which is part of SAIC. They're going to be produced in Shanghai as early as next year, and they'll basically be the electric A3 and A4. Audi then want to work with them to help develop new joint technical platform for future models, uh, which will come to the market 27-28. They will not be using the MEB technology tied in yeah. with, particularly for the Chinese market. Now, we don't know mm-hmm. whether this is going to be going globally or whether this is specific to the Chinese market either, because we know that the Volkswagen Group are working with uh, Chinese companies to do the software side of things because the Chinese cu- Chinese customers expect a different experience software-wise than we do mm. in the West um, or other parts of the world do. Or that we've been allowed. Yes. Well, no, it goes down to sort of like little cutesy assistants and that kind of stuff, which yeah. one does not expect in an, in an Audi. You know, it's all very serious. Mm. Do you want to have a quick swing by the designer's mood board? Yes, designer's mood board uh, this week, super quick. Achim Anscheid, Bugatti's chief of design, has stepped down after 19 years. Uh, so he was behind the Veyron Supersport, the Chiron, and the forthcoming, as yet unnamed, Chiron's successor. Uh, he became 
design director in 2004, following various roles at Porsche and Volkswagen. And his replacement is going to be Frank Hale, who has been his deputy uh, up until now. Uh, Anschert will still remain around, and he'll become a senior advisor to Matty Rimac, uh, who, of course, is the CEO of of, uh, of Bugatti Rimac. Yeah. I, th- I think this must be one of the brands where the engineer and design team have been so closely linked because of what the cars have been asked to do and, mm. and to push the boundaries when it comes to the internal combustion engine, how fast they actually want these things to go. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it must have been such a, such a close collaboration, whereas you can see in other car companies, the designer has been allowed to do things and the engineers have had to try draw, and make that happen. Swoopy lines, yeah. And the design and the engineers have had to try and make that happen in reality. Uh, and equally in other places you see, well, this is clearly engineered mm. has got the upper hand on this rather than design. Yeah. Um one of the things about uh, I've always thought the Chiron was a really good looking car, mm. actually. Um whereas I never liked the Veyron, I always mm. thought it was a bit too slabby and bling. Whereas the Chiron actually is less bling than the Veyron. Yes. In my mind. I mean, that's pure personal taste. Yeah, and it's, it's a remarkable thing to say, but yes. It's relative. I, I was at the, uh, there's people following me on, on Twitter or X or whatever it's called today. No, yesterday I was at the, the Henry Ford Museum where there is a Bugatti Atlantic and it's just tucked away in a corner. <laughs> it's like the first time. Normally it's a primary display, but it's just, sorry, ridiculous massive Bugattis was what was going through my head. But that's always been the way with, with, you know, that actually is a traditional Bugatti way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Let's move into points of interest. And we have a lunchtime watch this time. We have two friends of the show. First of all, TV's Paul Cowland is meeting up with Chris Pollitt, who uh, is behind, well, is asking Paul to take us around his car collection. And it is some car collection. I went and saw it a few years ago when I interviewed him for Rear View. And um, the brief few minutes that I had around it were not anywhere near long enough. I could have spent weeks there, to be honest, just having a look and poking at stuff. He's got some remarkable vehicles, and he continues to add to them as well. Mm. I wonder how much he tells mm-hmm. people. You know, he tells his family that he's got. Oh, they, they, they know. Because <laughs> I made a joke about that once to him. And he said, no, 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 my wife does the books, so she's in charge of taxing and insuring more, oh, okay. so she knows exactly what I've got. So it's not like Shami where his wife has to watch social media to find <laughs> out what he's <laughs> bought to next. his Twitter account. No, no, it's not. It's, uh, no, Mrs. Cowlin knows. So uh, do click the link on the show notes uh, and have a watch through on that. It is, um, it's a, just over 37 minutes long, but you do see an awful lot of great stuff. And obviously it's, it's Chris and Paul. So that's entertaining to watch anyway. It's the two people with whom I can talk for hours and hours and hours anyway. Yeah. And and it's it's kind of funny just what just listening and watching the two of them and it, it I feel slightly left out. Because you're you're saying things and they can't reply. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. And I, normally it's replying with words which are not repeatable on the podcast, otherwise you have to break out the European siren. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great one. Cracking one. Do you want to take us to the list of the week? So, list of the week this week is... Huge. It's titled, 
the greatest cars ever made with pop-up headlights. What's the reality, Alan? <laughs> it is all the cars ever made with pop-up headlights. Uh, there are 51 slides or something in here. It's not quite all of them. But it is a multiplicity of them. There are options. There are many options. Andrew, I'm going to let you go. Right, th this first. one's really... I think we can both choose. Yes, yeah, yeah you, you don't worry. You can comfortably pick something. Uh, there are lots and lot. I found this really difficult. I have to say, I found it very difficult to to pick anything this week. Um, and for me, I have plumped, and it could have been any of them. Honestly, it really could. I have plumped for the Lincoln Continental Mark III from 1969. Nice choice. Ridiculously massive car, and I love the way that they do the headlights. Yes, yes. I've just discovered that my copy of it is. It has just jammed. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going to choose the Porsche 928. Okay, there we go for something a little bit different. But there are still 48, 49 yes. others for people to choose from. We have not revealed too much this week, that's for sure. That is absolutely for certain. And those, you know, I could quite easily have five. I could have a, easily at least a, t a handful from here. Yeah. Oh, there's one I didn't think of. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now there's some, there's some which you go, yeah, whatever. It's just a car pop-ups, but there's others where you go, oh, I'd forgotten about that. Which is always fun. That's yep. the aim of the list of the week, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. And finally, though, Andrew, um, something about the desert. Yes, via France. And how do you pronounce the name of this again? I know we did this before, but I can't. It's Azam Mega Desert. Right. Thank you. That is the Dakar rally car that you either didn't know existed, or if you did know, you've probably forgotten, because it was involved in one Dakar back in 2000. There's this remarkable article from uh, Treetop Balm that digs into the history of this, because the, the, the person who wrote this just basically start, fell down a rabbit hole. You know we like a rabbit hole here. Hmm. It fell down a rabbit hole to do with this company, and then well, the, the first question. to find things. Andrew, is, is why is a French microcar maker, what, why are they entering the Dakar? What on earth possessed them? You know, that's the first question. I think because people went the pub and had a good idea. Yes. Because I get the feeling. Cause I they, they imagine made, so. They made a sports car with a Mercedes V12 in it, mm. which again feels like we've been in the pub a while and we've started chatting, and we think this is a great idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it is, you, you do have to click through and read this. It is a remarkable story. There's a video at the end as well showing off the vehicle, and they ended up being second. Yeah. But there's a whole story of how that happened and why it was that particular race was remarkable as well for, for different reasons. So I'm not going to spoil it all. Do click through and read it. But it's just, it's just mad, but brilliant. I love it. Love finding these stories. Is ace. Yeah, I, I do think that alcohol was involved in, in some of the decision-making and quite often seems to have been involved in some of the decision-making and for sort of Azam Mega side projects. It's cool, though. Yeah. Definitely cool. Definitely worth covering. That pretty much does it for this week, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. Excellent. Um, apologies uh, from my end if the sound was a little bit off. I am sitting in a hotel room with not a lot of soft furnishings using an unusual setup 
and the air conditioner just by my right elbow has kicked in, uh, meaning there's probably a little bit of background noise as I'm speaking right at the minute. Uh, I know that my right armpit is freezing up as I speak. But that's just about it. Um, anything else? Any other parish notes, Andrew? No, not this week. Not this week. Okie doke. So everyone, don't forget that between now and next week, you can give us any feedback, share your thoughts on the show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Uh, remember, you can support us financially via Patreon, and please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. Andrew, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter or Mastodon. If you search for Crack Windscreen, you should find me there. And Alan... What's the best way for people to get in touch with you when you have defrosted your right armpit? Uh, once again, it is uh, Twitter or X or whatever, uh, and Mastodon, where I'm at, AJP Bradley. That's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. As we said, we'll be back very soon. But until then, I've been Alan Bradley. I've been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring.